Welcome to the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski. The Recovery Executive Podcast is the only podcast geared towards addiction treatment center owners, executives, and directors that helps you grow your center, especially in these times of very high competition and lots of change. The Recovery Executive Podcast is brought to you by Circle Social Inc., growth experts in the field of addiction treatment, far more than a marketing agency. They work with you and partner closely to make sure that your strategic business objectives are achieved all across the board. Today we are speaking with Robin Piper. Robin Piper is the CEO of Turning Point of Tampa. Turning Point of Tampa has been around since 87. And in today's podcast, our particular interest is in Robin's journey she started off as a clinician and a clinical director and eventually moved into the role of CEO. This is not an uncommon experience for many people in the field. And so we talked to her about her journey, what the challenges were, what she's learned about along the way, and maybe different approaches to things from a clinical perspective versus a CEO, as well as what can be learned. So there are also a lot of us CEOs out there who maybe do not have the same clinical background, and so what, from her perspective, can we learn or should we be looking at to better understand the treatment aspects of her program? She has some very interesting advice, not just in her own journey, but what centers should be doing to be viable in today's environment, especially with the high level of competition out there, and what makes a good center that enables you to be around for 30 years. So very excited to share this podcast, this episode with you. Uh, with that, let's get started and meet Robin. Hi, Robin. How are you doing today? I'm great, thank you. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and Turning Point? Absolutely. I've been here for um, 21 years now in turn- at Turning Point down in Tampa. Um, I'm a licensed mental health counselor. I'm also a certified addiction professional and a trauma specialist. I have... Um, degrees in both mental health counseling and administration. Wow. And Turning Point's been around since 87, right? Yeah, we have. We've been around for 31 years and owned by the same person the whole time. So we haven't changed hands. We're a private organization, family owned. That's so we're awesome. one of the, um, we're one of the old timers. Yeah. Yeah. I really like working with centers that have been around a long time, you know, cause you know, they're in the game for the right reasons. Um, and they, they've seen a lot, you know, that, that experience, um, it's invaluable. You know, the experience the team has experience you have internally operations wise, you know, it's just so much more you can do, I think, than when you're first starting off. Absolutely. And I think it shows that, you know, if you can withstand the changes in our industry and the stuff that happens and still be doing the right thing and being able to support you and your staff doing it, I think that says a lot. Yeah, Absolutely. So that's one of the reasons I really wanted to have you on the show is you've got that extensive experience and also you've got the clinical background. So you've moved from kind of the clinical space into the role of a CEO. Can you talk a little bit about that journey and what it's like to move from, you know, a more patient focused role to more business growth focused role? Absolutely. You know, and I came into this business on the, on the, um, the clinical end. I, I say that I'm a therapist at heart. That's that's what mm-hmm. I do. That's what's really natural to me. Um, but my growth in my career came as a result of a beloved mentor of mine who I think kind of had this planned without me knowing. And in my work with him over the years at different facilities, 
he put me in different departments. So I got to do marketing for a while, and I did admissions, and I did clinical director, and I did administration. So before you, before I knew it, I had done almost every part of the treatment facility except for the um, business office part. Okay. Uh, but I was very versed with insurance. So I kind of had that training in all areas before I became the CEO. Okay. So I'm sure that was extremely beneficial because I know sometimes people just kind of jump into that role. So it sounds like you kind of gradually waded in. Yes, absolutely. And I came to the current position here in Tampa just as the clinical director and then grew into um, the CEO. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about your personal feelings, actually? So one thing that I've seen just in my own personal journey into leadership was at first I was actually quite uncomfortable moving into uh, an administration role where I wasn't as hands-on, right? Um, you know, did you have kind of a similar personal journey where it was hard for you to step back from being hands-on with patients and people actually on a day-to-day basis in the center? Um, yeah, I don't like not being hands-on. I think I'm a very hands-on person, as a matter of fact. Um, I still attend clinical staff meetings. I still, every once in a while, will even take a client. Oh, yeah? Carry a caseload, attend oh, staff cool. meetings. Yeah, so I, I try to stay very connected because I think that that helps me mm-hmm. keep my mind open to all different areas that are going on because it's not just business and it's not just clinical. It's a combination of both. Yeah, I agree. I've had the same experiences where I feel that once you do get into more of an executive role, you still need to keep at least one foot grounded in terms of what's actually happening on the front lines. Because if you don't do that, you start to lose sight, you know, and you start to be too focused on the numbers maybe. I don't know, you know, if you would agree with that. Yeah, I I think so. You just lose sight of being in the the chair of the therapist and in the chair of the client. You know, what, what is it like to be in treatment at your treatment center? Um, and you only know that by spending time with the clients and by interacting with them. For sure. Another aspect for me that was I found more beneficial is I think one of the reasons I like to be really hands-on is you, you see that immediate impact, right? You know, you're talking to a person, you see the difference that you're making. Whereas once you get into a leadership role, it is more uh, of maybe sometimes a spreadsheet that you're looking at rather than the person across the table from you but also your impact is larger. So I'm not just having an impact in the group that I'm in or you know the people I'm talking to, but I'm impacting everyone that comes into our space. And I think that was a big shift in mindset for me to be like, okay, I can help more people in a larger role. Yeah, I agree, absolutely. And I think also because I oversee the clinical team, um, and I remember my first clinical director position, it was just a few weeks in when I realized, oh, I still have a case, so they're just therapists now. They're not clients. Sure. Um, you know, I think giving people a positive space to work in and the tools that they need to help other people um, is really important for me. I think having that clinical team be cohesive and together and, you know, know what they're doing and have the desire to do it, I think giving them what they need then helps those clients. Right, right. You have to empower your teams to be able to find solutions. Perfect word, yes. So I'm sure you've also had some challenges in that that transition moving from clinical to, you know, more of an executive role. What challenges did you see when you were kind of moving through the process? 
you know, over the years I've found that um, sometimes I become too focused on one area as opposed to the other and that I have to check myself to make sure that I'm paying attention to all that needs to be done. Sometimes if I immerse myself too much in the clinical, then the business end gets ignored a little bit, and mm. that's not good for the company. So I have to kind of learn how to um, navigate that and to do that. I'd like to explore that a little bit more because that's definitely a big challenge. You know, I often say you want to focus on your strengths and outsource the rest, right? So there's this element of letting people that have that ability work on it. But, you know, also on the other end, you do need to have an oversight of everything that's going on. So you understand the pieces, how they fit together. So you can set the vision and the strategy, you know, so how do you navigate that balance? I think having people around me who will give me honest feedback has been huge for me. I have some key staff members who've been here many, many years who've kind of grown this with me who will come and say, oh, listen, you know, can I close the door? We need to talk. <laughs> sure. Um, and, and you know, being open to hearing what the people who are working for you um, have to say and what they see and what they think needs to happen, I think that's huge. Uh, so getting being open to getting feedback from other people I think is really important. Yeah, I agree. And that can be a challenge, right? You have to, I think it comes down to culture creation, right? Because you can create a culture of yes men where they're just trying to tell you what you want to hear because they're afraid to make a mistake in front of you. Uh, or, or you have this open dialogue where they do give critical feedback in a respectful way um, that allows you to make the improvements that, that are obviously going to come about, you know, from time to time. Right. And I think also having people around me that I trust, that I trust implicitly, that um, I know that they're going to represent the company well. Um, I can trust that they're going to be ethical. I can trust they're going to do the right thing. That's really important for me is I, because letting go of some of the areas that aren't my strengths but are other people's strengths, I have to have that trust in them in order to really let it go. So can you tell us a little bit about how you find people and keep people? Because the addiction treatment space, especially if you look at like marketing or business development, I see people move around a lot, right? They're, sometimes they're only enrolled for three to six months before they're on to their next center. So what do you do to mitigate that or to find the right people? Well, you know, we have a history of just not hiring those people. Um, we don't participate in kind of that, that treatment, the facility hopping that a lot of um, marketing staff and PR staff do. We're very particular about who we hire. You know, maybe even at the point that we've not grown as fast as other places have grown because we were, weren't willing to take the risks involved in that growth. Hmm. I think in general I'm a very cautious person, so I think I run the business cautiously. So it's a mix of being cautious yet pushing it forward enough to continue to grow and, and, and do what we want to do. So what do you so look I for? It's really hard to look for people. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, talent yeah. is, I think everyone's challenged these days, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really important because I came up in this business by someone giving me opportunities. They saw something in me that, that they liked and they gave me opportunities to grow. So I try to do that with, with our staff here. And we have, a lot of staff members who've grown up in this organization, who've gone back to school and, you know, who were alumni here eight years ago, got sober, went and got a bachelor's degree, went and got a master's degree, and then came to work here. Mm -hmm. 
Are there specific things that you look for in people? I think it's important for me that um, people act ethically mm-hmm. um, and that they believe in what they're doing. You know, I think at the bottom of everything we do here at Turning Point, we really believe in what we're doing, and in some part of us is we're called to do this kind of work. So I look for that in other people. Yeah, I have found in all of my roles in hiring that I always hire for attitude over skill sets and experience. I feel I can train the skills, right? Um, but it sounds like you yeah. would agree with that statement. Absolutely, yep. If, if you hire the right type of person, you can teach them to do just about anything. Yeah, exactly, yep. So with other treatment centers where they do have more of a carousel, everyone's just kind of moving around all the time, I feel they're very focused on the numbers. And sometimes it's not even that the staff are looking for a new position, but if you don't hit you know, number X within the first three months, you're kind of axed and the next person's moved in. You know, but when you take an attitude approach and a skills-based approach where there's training involved, that takes more time. You know, so what would you say the value is of investing in that staff member and helping them grow, even if it's going to be a slower process than just trying to find someone that's going to be able to immediately jump in somehow and, and make some numbers happen? You know, it's so interesting because my um, director of uh, marketing and I just had this conversation, <laughs> um, just had this conversation this week. And if we've erred in areas in our business, it's been that um, we've given people too long mm-hmm. to be productive. Um, we've waited, we've trained, we've helped, we've prodded um, before we said, okay, yeah, maybe this isn't going to work for us. Um, we don't believe in that quick three months produce it or you're out right. or you have to have this many numbers a month, many people, um, or you're out because – I mean, this is really a business of relationships, and we just need people out there carrying our message. We know that we're providing an excellent product and we're doing the right thing, and so we just need people to go out and carry the message to other people. Um, And then when they experience us, then they're going to know that it was the right decision. So it is about building relationships and not just about a quick turn of getting ahead in the bed. Yeah, agreed. You know, Obviously, when you look at centers like yours, where you guys have been around for 30 plus years, you see how effective that is long term, right? Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. And in the industry, the way it is today, that is, you know, that's that's, that's not happening. There are fewer mm -hmm. of us out here that have been around longer and people are buying and selling and popping up and putting up new. Yeah. Well, let's dig into that a little bit, because that's actually an issue that we see. Um, with the centers that have been around a long time, some of them still don't actually have the operational expertise that they do need to compete in this environment. So sometimes they're surviving off of key relationships that they've just had around for 20 years and maybe something happens and they lose a couple of those key referral partners and suddenly they don't know how to succeed in today's environment. You know, what advice would you have in terms of sustainability and staying competitive? You know, the, I think the biggest thing for me is you don't put all your eggs in one basket. You can't put all your eggs into one or two referral relationships because at some point that relationship is going to change. Mm-hmm. That's just human nature. So you have to be diversified enough to survive the ebbs and flows of the industry. And you have to be wise enough with cash flow and with money to survive those downtimes. We all have them. 
How are you going to stay afloat? One thing I've never been willing to compromise on is we don't lay off staff when our census goes low, you know, the therapists. We don't say, hmm. you know what, we're going to lay you off because it's too hard to find good therapists. Sure. That I'm, I'm not going to let them go because my census takes a dive because I know it's going to go back up. Yeah, if you're doing so things right. You have yeah. to, right. You have to manage those times, have the resources you need to survive those times. And you have to, your business has to be diversified. You have to be in all areas. Yeah. I'm a very strong believer in that. You know, I mean, we talk to clients about that all the time, but you can't just be relying on AdWords or a particular referral partner or your Google search engine results, right? At some point, competition is going to come in, costs are going to change, clients and demographics are going to change. So you should always be investing in building out additional strategies, additional channels to make sure that when something does change, you're in a good position to weather that storm. Absolutely. So another thing that we talk to clients about is actually investing in new channels and that's expensive. And so clients hate it, <laughs> you know, but <laughs> if you've got channels working, you know, but then you're saying, Hey, okay, let's move into YouTube here. Let's move into Facebook or Bing or whatever it is. And that's going to take a bunch of money to build up an audience there and validate, you know, those channels. You know, what would you say that you've done from your own experience, whether it's digital marketing, regular marketing, referral relationship buildings, like how do you invest and how much time do you give it um, to get a new channel working? You know, I, I think we give it a, a good amount of time because nothing worth having is going to happen quick at all relationships and all business development takes some time. So you have to give things enough time to come to fruition. You know, one of the disadvantages we have here in, in our private facility owned by one person is we don't have a corporate umbrella. We don't have those huge investors that are throwing money um, into Google. I mean, yeah. I've heard insane amounts of money getting thrown into Google AdWords oh, yeah. every month. Mm -hmm. We don't have that, um, I, guess, I guess you could call it a luxury, although I'm not sure it is. Yeah. So we can invest only what we have. Um, and and push it forward. The, my marketing director and I laugh that we kind of do like guerrilla marketing, mm -hmm. um, frontline stuff. You know, we're going out, we're telling people what's happening, we're talking to the people in the community, we're developing those relationships. We're not, you know, we're we have an internet presence. We have all the Facebook and the Instagram and um, you know the, the Google ads and the you know we have a media team that works with us. Sure. Um, but a small one. We really are out there in our community talking to people. They know who we are because we've been here so long and we provide them a product that they want. It's very interesting because I think as a smaller center that's been around for a long time, you know, maybe you guys, you're not looking at national dominance, <laughs> right? You're, you're right. comfortable where you are. Um, and when you do it that way, I feel like you end up being more creative and challenging yourself to be smarter. Because if I can dump a million dollars a month into AdWords, then I become kind of reliant on it. But I also, what I'm always asking in my head or with clients is like, if you're putting a million dollars a month into AdWords, what could you have done with that money? <laughs> right? Right, that right. built out other channels and was more long-term in terms of the investment returns rather than AdWords, which is really one-off constantly every month um so you know your right. way... and then when they're gone they're gone when those yes. ads are gone they're gone if you put that money into 
getting people, getting your staff in front of the community, getting your staff in front of the doctors in the area, educating your community, that doesn't go away. Exactly. Right. When somebody hits the refresh button, you know, it's it stays there. That impression lasts. Yeah, I think that's so important to understand. And it builds over time, right? Whereas AdWords, right. again, it, it disappears. It's just a one and done. People found you, they called. Whereas if you build those community relationships or maybe other marketing channels, over time you have stronger audiences, stronger recognition, better reputation. And so you can rely on that. And it's going to take time and money to build but it's still a lot cheaper than trying to pour it all into something like AdWords. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, I think I learned that lesson. I started out in this field way, right when I got out of my undergrad program at the Ohio State University, a little plug there. Oh, and um, yeah. I started working in the admissions office at the old Glen Bay Hospital um, up in Ohio, and they did a lot of TV advertising. And so I was on the front lines. I was, you know, the girl working the weekends, uh, trying to get my foot in the door. And we knew when those ads went off because the phones would ring like crazy. Sure. But you'd get 30 calls and one would be workable. Yep. Pretty common. One. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So that impression has lasted with me all these years of, yeah, we can do that, but it's it's not really a good bang for your buck. No, not a lot of the time. And a lot of centers aren't set up to filter those inquiries appropriately, follow up appropriately. And because at the end of the day, that's a kind of campaign that has to build over time. And I think what a lot of centers do is they like take the call, see if it's a fit, and then either close it or shuffle it off. And that doesn't allow you to build your reputation because you're not regularly talking to these people. You know, So if you take a different approach where you're regularly communicating, maybe it's through emails, maybe through callbacks, you know, that will build over time. But if you take it as we're just going to take the call and then either drop it or move forward with it, then that's it's, you're wasting your spend is usually what I say. Absolutely. I agree. So you've got this great clinical background. You've moved in the CEO role. How do you think your background as a clinician has benefited you in the role of CEO compared to someone who might not have that background that's also a CEO? You know, I think I can see both sides of it. Um, I can see both sides of what's happening uh, because – we are a business and we have to operate like a business, but our business is people. So you have to, you have to understand that and you have to be willing to be flexible and you have to take care of your clients, number one, and keep the business afloat while you're doing it. So I think having that knowledge makes a difference. And I think it makes a difference for my staff when they're interacting with me because they know it's not just about business for me. Mm -hmm. um, they know I'm also a clinician. I sit in clinical staff meetings. I, I work with clients. So they trust that um, I can see both sides of it. And, you know, I have painful days when I have to weigh whether or not I'm going to make the business decision on that one or the clinical decision on that one. Sure. Um, you know, those 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 situations come up, and, and they're tough. I really have to think about what's the best thing. Yeah, yeah. I hear you. In terms of the clinical background, do you think that it has helped your center from a business standpoint in maybe any changes you've made to the way that you approach treatment in the center? I do think so because I think a lot of centers, um, when maybe the executives don't really have that clinical knowledge, jump into or onto the latest bandwagon of mm -hmm. therapy or bandwagon of treatment. Yeah. Um, 
and it's not necessarily a, a good idea. It's not a good clinical idea. It's probably not a good business idea either, but they're trying it uh, yeah. because someone sold them on it, and it mm-hmm. sounded good to them, um, right. whereas I have really, really a very clear foundation of clinical belief about what works for recovery and what doesn't, and I've never been willing to stray from that. Sure. So, you know, somebody could come in selling the latest and greatest therapy technique, and I'm going to say, you know, no, no thanks. I just, I'm not going to buy that. So we've got listeners that are obviously coming from that background. They're CEOs without a clinical background. So, I mean, could you elaborate further on maybe some of the treatments that you wouldn't recommend that are out there these days? Oh, gosh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, no worries. <laughs> I, you know, what I, what, I, <laughs> what I will say is that I think the research shows very clearly and it's evidence-based that the underlying foundation of 12-step recovery works. Hmm. Now, the people we see in the facility, they need more than 12 steps because if that would have worked, they would have gotten clean and sober and in recovery in the 12-step rooms. Sure. So they need a combination of 12-step and good therapy and good psychiatric care and nutritional care for eating disorder clients. And, you know, there are a lot of different facets of that. So you guys also have a very strong aftercare program from what I see. You know, can you tell us a little bit about what you do in that respect? Absolutely. So we do um, a lot of the traditional alumni functions. We have alumni events. We have alumni picnics. We have what we call our comedy interventions. We bring a recovering comedian in um, for oh, a big get-together and a big stand-up show. Um, we also do the aftercare groups where we have clients come back. They can come back as long as they want to our aftercare group every Wednesday night. And we also do um, a new program called MAP which is um, really an outcome-driven program where we have a staff member that calls clients after they leave and asks a series of interview questions to find out how they're doing and check in on them and that kind of thing. Okay. All right. So you are having a lot of programming on site. Is a lot of your um, alumni, are they from the Tampa or the Florida area? You know, a good number of them are. Not all of them, um, but a good number number of them are, yes. We also do the Facebook and you know, the social media is a way to keep connected, but sure. we send out monthly emails to them also. So we really try to keep them engaged. It's interesting. We just did another podcast with uh, James Crater and we talked a lot about alumni engagement and different strategies for it. For you, have you seen particular um, strategies, whether it's the comedic nights or the Facebook groups that have worked the best for you in terms of keeping alumni engaged? You know, they love the events. They love the, the comedy interventions. They love the picnics. This, this last year when we did our picnic, instead of having alumni speakers, we actually had staff speakers, and we got so many more people to come out really? they wanted to hear the staff, um, the staff stories. That's very they were interesting. Very, very, very <laughs> so they, they like those events. They like that so, the, you know, the social aspect of it, getting together, hanging out, having a good time. We've also done... Um, recharge days on the weekend like a recharge day okay where we'll have a couple of the therapists and we'll have alumni come in and and sit down for you know days worth of groups to sure. kind of get refreshed okay all right so we were talking before a little bit about you know you being um very discerning about what treatment programs you bring in and maybe sometimes there's fad treatments out there and things like that and i know we don't want to talk about specifics but Again, if you're a CEO or a director that doesn't have that clinical background, do you have recommendations in terms of like criteria, how they should be evaluating a particular treatment methodology in terms of effectiveness? 
You know, I think, you know, although I think it gets overused, I, but I think evidence-based is important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, some time, having some time to know that a certain um, modality is effective and is effective with addicts. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the most important things you can do, even if you decide to bring something in, you need to ask the client how effective they thought it was. You need to talk to them about how much it helps. You know, we recently, a little while ago, we brought in a drumming circle. So we were doing a drumming circle once a week because we thought it would be fun. It would be good for the clients. Um, and all, we all loved it. Mm. The clients didn't like it. Okay. <laughs> they didn't like it at all. Um, <laughs> That's funny. But, you know, I mean, so it's just a, a very simple example of just ask the clients what they think or what they think is effective. Yeah, I think it's really good advice. You know, I agree it takes time to get evidence back on programs. If you do want to take on something that's a little bit more cutting edge, then you should have the systems and processes in place to measure those outcomes, both in terms of client feedback and overall effectiveness, right? Absolutely. And to know that, you know, you have to see if that business, that line of business will work or not. Because mm-hmm. the therapy we provide is a product. So you're yeah. providing a product to the client. So you need you need some time to provide that product. You can't just kind of do it and then move on and do it and move on and just facilities that you know the latest and the greatest they just have never been a bandwagon on the bandwagon for those yeah well yeah i'm a big believer in a lot of the effectiveness of treatment i think any kind of treatment has to come from client buy-in you know so if they are supportive of what you're doing you have a much better chance of that kind of treatment being successful um it's just it's, it's interesting right it's a little bit relative or subjective but if clients believe in it they'll they'll follow through a lot of the time so we're talking about the clinical background here and i know that sometimes the clinical staff and the executive staff can have some tension right because of different perspectives and so you've talked a little bit about already how they maybe have more trust because you know or they know what background you're coming from um but is there anything that you would say maybe to a clinical director listening to this or advice for a ceo working with clinical directors um in terms of things you didn't know that you know now or maybe different ways that you engaged when you made that transition from clinical to executive? Well, that's a good question. Um, Well, I think just like it's important to have the client buy-in, it's important to have the staff buy-in. It's important that the staff believe in what you're doing, um, and it's important that the staff bond as a team. We did a lot of team bonding things when I first got here, even as just as the clinical director because it, the organization was kind of going through a really cha- big transition. Hmm. Um, so we needed to get to know each other, and we needed to become a team. So I think team building is really important. Um, when you get that cohesive team of therapists, then they, in turn, can go out in their groups and develop cohesive groups of clients. That makes sense. You know, in the different roles you've had within your centers, how do you feel your relationships have changed? with your staff as you moved into these different roles? You know, I think I I never would have guessed this, but I think I've become a lot of um, what I do is I teach. Um, I do a lot of supervision, a lot of clinical supervision. So I'm providing guidance for the therapist. Um, I think that's how one of the – I think years ago – I was kind of one of the team, mm-hmm. um, and over the years, I've become the teacher of the team. Hmm. 
I've seen that kind of evolution in, in my own growth here and my in my role in the company and, and how it's changed. Um, I'm not necessarily one of them anymore. I'm kind of um, the guider of yeah. the group. I think that's something people struggle with moving into a leadership role is there tends to be a difference. Do you find there needs to be a balance or do you find it challenging in any way? Whereas maybe you used to be their friend and you used to hang out more and now you feel that there has to be a kind of professional distance? Um, I really haven't seen that struggle. Okay. Um, you know, I, lo- I, I like to be one of, one of the guys. Mm-hmm. Um, I love to be just another therapist and be able to interact like that, but I have to, I have to remember that I'm not. Yeah. Um, so as much as I want to be, that's not my role. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you know, we're a very personable group. We're a smaller organization, so we have a very open door policy. Our culture is very family oriented. Um, so we share personal information about each other. You know, we know each other's lives. We know each other's spouses, um, and we have that connection. Hmm. Yeah, I know for sometimes people moving in, you know, suddenly you move maybe from a a position of friendship where there has to be a performance conversation, right? And that changes the dynamic. (laughs) Or you can't have the same venting sessions maybe about work that used to, (laughs) right? Right, No one does that in front of me anymore. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah, nobody does that in front of me anymore. Um, Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) So what are your goals for you now in the future and as well as for a turning point? Um, You know, what are my goals? I think I really enjoy being able to provide that clinical supervision to the therapist. And I really enjoy being able to give people opportunities to grow and develop and and to see this next generation of of substance abuse professionals come up. And I, I want to be able to provide them a space where they can do the work they want to do in a in a healthy environment that's ethical and mm. professional. Um, you know, I get a lot of gratification out of that, that, that working here at Turning Point is different than working at other facilities because we do it the right way, we do things the right way, and, and we're a nice place to work. Um, you're going to enjoy being here. And I, I, I like that role, and I want to continue to do more of it. Um, you okay. know, as far as Turning Point goes, you know, we – we, I get calls all the time from people, you know, this acquisition merger kind of world out mm-hmm. there. I get calls yeah. every week, and it's just not our path right now. It's not where we are. We're very good and comfortable. We we know what we do, and we do it really, really well, and we're just going to continue to do it really, really well. We're not interested in, you know, taking over this center or that center or merging so we can get a couple million dollars in our pockets so we can do this or that. That's just not our path. Mm. You know, sometimes there's a mentality out there that's kind of grow or die. And you talked a bit about diversification and things like that. You know, where do you feel that fits in? Do you feel that there's a need for growth in some respects just to stay competitive? Absolutely. You have to um, you have to morph with the industry to a certain extent. You have to take on new business. You have to be willing at looking at avenues for business that you maybe wouldn't have looked at 10 years ago. So you have to do that. You have to grow and change um, in order to stay alive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the staff has to do the same thing. They have to morph themselves. They have to – our population is different than it was 20 years ago. It's very different, and we have to change. We have to change our programming, and we have to change how we conduct ourselves based on that. Mm. So there's 
definitely you have to grow and change, but I don't think you have to um, multiply. Mm, that makes sense. <laughs> you know, we're not we're not necessarily interested in multiplying, but we've definitely grown, and aspects of our organization are very different than it was 10, 15 years ago. Do you think maybe you could give a specific example of a key turning point for you in one of those areas? Um. Yeah, for the first time, we were willing to contract with a privatized Medicaid product, hmm. whereas um, years ago, we probably wouldn't have done that. Um, so I think that's one area where where we've done that. Um, I see a lot of centers moving in network now. Is that something that you guys have been doing or been looking at? We have always been in a network facility. You've always been in network. Okay. So, it's definitely we have always been in network. <laughs> when I space. when I got here 21 years ago, the majority of the population was actually self-pay, hmm. and so that was one of the changes and 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 growth that we have done slowly over the years. But so I started signing contracts with managed care companies when I first got here 21 years ago. Okay. Um, but we are in network with almost every big. There's one big insurer we're not in network with mm-hmm. by choice. Um, other than that, we are in a network facility. So are most of your residents and most of your patients in network then? Yep, majority of them are. We probably have like 20% self-pay. Okay. Um, and the other 80% are getting paid um, by um, an outside provider, yes. So I think a lot of centers would find that challenging just based on maybe the margins or the operating budgets that they're used to. So clearly you guys have some operational efficiencies in place that I think a lot of Florida centers at least don't. You know, do you have any recommendations around what you guys do operationally to bring costs down to handle, you know, the lower reimbursements that you get with in-network rates? You know, well, one of the one of the advantages of being in network is first of all you have more you can take more people. Hmm. Um, so you have more volume. Um, and I think one of the advantages of being small is I run the business like I run my own checkbook. Mm. If I don't have it to spend, I don't spend it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm very frugal when it comes to that. I don't throw money at something in hopes that it will pay off. I, I usually need to be pretty reassured that this is going to be a good return on my investment before I put my money into it. Mm. Um, so we don't have a problem meeting budget at all. Um, you know, we, we are in the black. Yeah. Um, we're making money as an in-network facility, um, but you know we're not crazy spenders. We're not um, we're not whining and dining people, or our our marketing staffs aren't whining and dining people. We're not doing any of that. What I would call shady stuff. Sure. Um, we're very frugal with our money, but yeah, we we we're in the black with in-network, and it really is um, much easier. It's a much easier life because we're getting our claims get paid. Sure. Right. That's a big deal. <laughs> you know, we know we know that our claims are going to get paid because we know we're a network right. and we have authorization. Um, so we know that money's coming, whereas out of network, you never know what you're going to get. No. It's a really right. rough way to live. Yeah. Yeah. You have to have a pretty solid amount of capital in the bank to cover, <laughs> you know, all the contingencies. Right. Okay, well, great. Uh, I think last question for you would be, you know, maybe someone that's in a clinical director role now that wants to make a move eventually into a more executive role, what advice would you have for them to make that transition happen? I would say that 
you know, doing it the way that I was brought up in this business is the best way to do it. Go and work in those departments. Go out there and be a marketer for a while. Understand what that's about. Go work in the admissions office. Know what that's about. Go back and work with the behavioral health techs. Know what that's about. Figure out every part of the business. Really know it um, so you know what your employees are going through and know what your clients are going through. You need to know what it feels like to be a client um, and experience that from their shoes. And I think if you do that, then you'll have a really good big overview and picture of what it takes to run a company and, and to do it well. Yeah, I think that's good advice. I think for my own background and experience, you know, taking advantage of all the opportunities that are out there and going above and beyond and doing them, even if you're not getting paid for them. You know, for me, a yeah. lot of the times, you know, people would ask, like, well, why are you doing that? That's not your job. As well, I want to learn it, right? I want to learn it so I can get better at it. And so I think if people do that, they'll usually find the right kind of experience. So with Turning Point, obviously, it sounds like it's a great place to be, great place to work. So if people wanted to get in touch with you, either build a relationship or maybe for employment or anything like that, how would they get in touch with you? They can email me at rpiper at tpoftampa.com or give me a call at um, 1-800-397-3006. Okay. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show, Robin. Is there any final advice or anything you wanted to say before we finish up? You know, I think... People coming into the business need to come into it for the right reason. And it, although we can make money doing it because you want to be able to have a profitable business and support yourself and your families, don't come into the business if you're just into it for making money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, there, there are easier ways to make money yeah. <laughs> than be in this field. Um, come into it for the right reason. For sure. You know, I think, um, you know, when you do it right, it can be very emotionally draining, right? <laughs> so, I mean, there's yeah. there's a lot that goes into it, you know, outside of just uh, profit and loss, I think. And obviously, you know, all, all the responsibility you have for a patient's lives and the families of the patients, yeah. it's a lot to take on. And so I think people have to be prepared yeah. for that. All right, well, Absolutely. thank you very much, Robin. I really appreciate it. I encourage any listeners to reach out to Robin, you know, if you are interested in connecting. Again, this is a Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm Nick Jaworski. You can find the Recovery Executive Podcast on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, basically anywhere where podcasts are found. And you can download them as well as live stream them. So I encourage you to do that and listen on the go. This podcast is brought to you by Circle Social Inc., experts in growth for addiction treatment and behavioral health clinics. And with that, we look forward to speaking with you next time.